Great, well, I hope you've kept that open. Uh, if not, I encourage you to, to return to that passage that we've just read. Um, as you do that, let's bow our heads and let's ask God for his help in understanding this great passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is the means by which we know you. And it is the means by which we can know how to glorify you and praise you. And so we pray for us tonight, a body of people, some of whom are your people, some of whom are yet to become your people. And we pray for us that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of our lives, opening up our, our, our eyes and our hearts and our ears, not only to hear you speak, but to see you ourselves. We pray for that, for your name's sake. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, you'll see there in the screen behind me that our theme for this evening from this passage is about resisting the dragon. That's what we're going to be thinking about, uh, about resisting the dragon. And we're going to see this in our passage here, which you might think is a bit of an odd kind of breakdown of, of verses, but it's actually the end of a section. And it's a section that began back in chapter 11, verse 19, when God's temple was opened and finishes. You can have a look there at 15, verse 5, when the temple again in heaven is opened. But if you've been with us in our last couple of weeks, you'll know that this little section in Revelation is all about Satan. It's all about Satan, who's described as the dragon, and his tactics, which we saw in the last couple of weeks, are described as two beasts. If you've been with us, you'll know that, that, that Satan and his beasts present stiff opposition to Jesus and his people. We've seen how Jesus, or we've seen how uh, Satan is devious, how he lies, how he tempts, and how he manipulates in order to steal glory from God and to bring destruction upon God's creation and God's people. Well, tonight we're going to finish this section, and as I said, we're going to see how we as God's people can resist this threat how we can resist the dragon. And I've been thinking about why this is important this week. And I think this, this is what I've come up with. I think this is right. And the, the reason this is important, the reason this is here, is because although we know deep down in our hearts that Satan is no match for our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that. Still, when we think about him, when we hear about him, doubts still remain. Maybe you've been here in this last couple of weeks and you've read with us from God's Word and you've learned about the threat of Satan. And because of that, you're worried. Maybe you're worried about the strength and the power that Satan possesses. Perhaps you're concerned that you won't be able to spot his ploys or his tactics. Perhaps you're scared. You know that because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, that Satan sooner or later, is going to come after you. Perhaps you're scared that he's laid a trap and that one of you or one of your loved ones is going to fall into it. You see, as we study these passages about Satan and about his beasts, I reckon it's fair for us to say we're worried about him. I think it's fair for us to say, do you know what? This, this scares me. Let me say, if you're like me and you think this, well, I think these are valid fears. 
Because Satan means business, doesn't he? We must take him seriously. But tonight, as we finish this section, which teaches us about Satan, we're going to see how we can resist the temptations he throws at us and resist his attacks against us. And this passage is quite long, but we're going to try and work our way through it um, by looking at uh, three locations, and, and hopefully these will become clear as we look at these pa- this passage together. We're going to see the first location is what I'm calling inside the city, um, and then we're going to see about outside the city, and then before the city. So let's get in and, and have a look at these sections one by one. And this first point, we're going to see, we're going to be looking at inside the city, and you'll see there, um, we're going to look, um, we're going to see from this in these sort of two sections, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14, and 2 to 4 of chapter 15, that God's people are destined for Mount Zion. God's people are destined for Mount Zion. Now, we're going to see this mostly from chapter 14. So, if, if you would, have a look with me at the very beginning of chapter 14. Now, we've got a little bit of work to do in, in these verses, and the work we need to do is we need to see the contrast that is painted for us, because that's what John wants us to see there is a a contrast between chapter 14 and chapter 13. So let's have a look at verse 1 and see what John describes in chapter 14. You'll see there, uh, he tells us, verse 1, that the very first thing he sees is a lamb seated on Mount Zion. And then you'll see that there are 144,000 who had the name of the lamb and of the father before the lamb on their foreheads. Now, keep that picture in your mind, or keep that, keep looking at that, and then turn your attention to chapter 13, verse 1, because you'll see in chapter 13, verse 1, that there is a dragon standing on the shore of a sea. And then if you look over at verse 16 of chapter 13, you will see that the beast of the dragon forced everyone to receive a mark on their hand or their forehead. Now, keep those two pictures or those two sets of verses in your mind and compare them. Now, I hope you see the contrast. Because in one scene, we have a dragon or Satan. And in the other scene, we have the lamb or Jesus. And in the first scene, Satan is standing on the shore of the sea, which if you remember is the the picture of evil in Revelation. As the second scene, Jesus is standing on Mount Zion which we read in Isaiah 2 is a picture of the eternal city of God's people and the eternal dwelling of God. But then we have a picture of who's gathered in each of these scenes. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 16. It tells us that everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slaved, were to receive Satan's mark. Let's look at verse 14, verse 1. It is a limited number marked by Jesus. It tells us there in chapter 14, verse 1, that it's, the number is 144,000. And, and you'll know if you've been with us that that number is not literal. It signifies all of God's people from all of time. And the reason I want us to see that is because the number is it's not significant. What is significant is the manner in which each group is marked. Do you see what Satan does in verse 16 of chapter 13? It tells us, doesn't it? He also forced everyone. He forced everyone to wear his mark. 
as in chapter 14? Well, we're going to see that Jesus bought his people. We see this in verses 3 to 5. And if you look down at those verses, you'll see that this is a description of what those gathered before the the throne do. It tells us that they sing a new song. And then it says in verse 3, do you see what it says? No one could learn the song except 144,000. And this is key. He had been redeemed from the earth. And then have a look at the end of of verse 4. What does it say in verse 4? It describes them as people who did not defile themselves with the woman or with Babylon. And it tells us that they go wherever the land goes. But do you see what it says then? They were purchased from among men. And so you see, there is a contrast being drawn for us right at the very beginning of this chapter. And it's a contrast which shows us the difference between being a Christian and a non-Christian, not a Christian. It tells us that if you're not a Christian, then you follow the dragon, that you're held in captive by him. He is forcing you to wear his mark. But it says if you're a Christian, then you have been bought with the blood of the Lamb, and you are free from the Father's wrath, you're free from your slavery to sin, and you're free from the captivity and the forces of the devil. And the results of Jesus' freedom, his his redemption is is mentioned here. We read some of them in in, in verses 3 to 5, didn't we? And you could be mistaken for reading these things as qualifications in order to be redeemed. But they're not qualifications of redemption, but results of redemption. Isn't that what it talks about? It says, it says they didn't defile themselves with women. What that means is that they did not following, follow anything else. The woman here, as we're going to see, signifies Babylon and, and Satan. But these people were faithful to Jesus. And then it talks about in verse 5, doesn't it? It talks about them not lying or being blameless. Of course, you know that you, if we were to try and hold this standard in order to be a Christian, all of us would fail. But these are not the qualifications of redemption, but the results of redemption. And of course, the great result, or the greatest result of their victory. Well, we read it in chapter 15, verses 2 to 3. Do you see what they do? Turn over to those verses. At the end of this great scene, John returns. He returns from seeing what we're going to see in a minute. He returns to see the wrath of God. And he sees, verse 2, those who had been victorious. And then we finish in verse 3 and verse 4, this great song of praise to the Lamb. But you see, I want us to get back, okay? So that's hopefully given you a little bit of a detail of what's going on. And hopefully you've been able to hang on as we've looked at that. But the big thing I want us to see is that whenever John describes this picture, describes God's people who have been redeemed by the Lamb, He describes them as being before the throne of God on Mount Zion in God's eternal city. He's saying, if you're a Christian, this is your destiny. He's saying, if you are a Christian, this is where you're going. He says, if you're a Christian, you can know for certain that Jesus has redeemed you. He says, if you're a Christian, you can know that your name has been written in the book long ago. He says, if you're a Christian, 
you have a name printed on you, and it is the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. And the reason John wants us to give us this picture of what, is, what it is like, this destination, is so that we can know, regardless of what happens in this life, in this world, that is where we are going. I hope you see how this is helpful. Because if we go back to my introduction, where, where, we, where we are in, in this big part of Revelation, we realize that it's here to, to help us resist the devil. And we've just been reading, haven't we, about the power of Satan and about the power of his beasts. And we've come to this passage worried about succumbing to the devil's lies. We come to this passage scared about being tempted by the dragon. We come to this passage anxious about falling into one of his ploys. But John, or God through John, gives us this vision that says, if you are a Christian then you're a member of this 144,000 and you're destined for Mount Zion, the city of our Lord. As you know, last week, or you may not know, last week I was in Krakow and uh, in Belfast International Airport, you know, they, they give you the pleasure of walking out in the runway to the plane and uh, no matter, you know, if it's raining or freezing, they just let you walk on out there. But you know what I saw last week? You'll enjoy this. I saw all these Thomas Cook airplanes uh, are grounded on their runway. And it made me think about this. Because you see, as Christians, it's not like booking a holiday where you're not sure if your company is going to get liquidated. Or you're not dependent on, you know, French, you know, uh, runway controllers or British airway pilots. You know, we don't have to worry about any of that. As Christians, we're going to Mount Zion And so when we think about the threat of the devil, of the dragon and his beasts, we have nothing to fear. What's the theme? God's people are destined for Mount Zion. No ifs, no buts. It's where we're going. Well, as well as inside the city, we must turn our attention to outside the city. And like I said in our Last point, we see that Christians are going to spend their eternity inside the city of God, inside Mount Zion. But in this point, we're going to see that those who do not trust in the Lamb are destined for an eternal judgment outside the city. And we see this in this section, uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 14, uh, to chapter 5, verse 1. And in these verses, we have a description of the last great judgment that will befall upon those who are not members of God's people. And if you have a look at those verses, have a look at verse 14, you will see that it begins with the appearance of one who is like the Son of Man. This person is most likely Jesus. And in the following verses, Jesus and his angels take their sickles and they harvest the world. Isn't that what happens? Do you remember we read those verses? It tells us there are a number of angels and it keeps talking about uh, the sickles and it keeps talking about the harvest. And it tells us that actually this harvesting, which is a harvesting of grapes, culminates, and you'll see in verse 19, it culminates with all that is gathered being thrown into a great wine press. Now, this might seem like quite an odd picture, but it is one that is actually used elsewhere in the Bible. And it's used to describe God's great 
judgment and his judgment upon those who oppose him. If you're interested in where to find that, you can have a look at Isaiah 63, and it's amazing, and it's almost explicit how how, how similar this passage is. But we don't need to turn to Isaiah 63 to know that this picture is about God's great judgment. We can look at chapter 15, verse 1. Do you see how it describes it? The very last phrase of that verse, do you see what it says? I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels and seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. And so what we have here in this point with this picture that that, that John sees is it wants us to know, God's people to know, that in the end, not only does the Lamb win, but that His victory is decisive. And that's what happens, isn't it? We see that because this picture, it changes. It changes from the, the sort of the scything of sickles across the world and this image of sort of soft fruit being trodden under the weight of a man to the total and utter judgment of mankind. And, and we see this, cast your eyes again at verse 19, because it tells us, the first thing we notice, it tells us where this wine press is. Oh, sorry, it's verse 20, verse 20. It tells us that it is outside the city. Now, I don't know if, if you noticed that little detail whenever we were reading, but that's really important because outside the city is where God's wrath occurs. Do you know Calvary is outside the city? That's what happens. That's what happened in the judicial system in the Old Testament. The lambs were sacrificed outside the city. It's where God's judgment takes place. And so, in this instance, we're told that God's enemies are not being punished outside of Jerusalem, but outside of Mount Zion, outside the city of our God. The second thing we need to notice is the change in this picture, where instead of grape just being produced, as we might imagine, blood is produced. Have a look at verse 20. See what it says? It tells us that so much blood is produced that it covers the whole world. That's what that 1600 stadia means. It's it's a sort of an image or a distance between the very north of Israel to the very south of Israel. So it's sort of a phrase you'll hear. It's kind of like John, John, or is it John O'Groats the Land's End? It's kind of that kind of language the Bible uses. And it's saying the whole world is going to be covered with blood. And it gives it the height, doesn't it? Right up to the horse's bridle. It's a pretty gruesome picture. But you see, it tells us that there is nowhere in this world and no one is going to escape the judgment of the Lamb. But again, let's wind this back and put this back into our context because what is our context? Our context is in this section that tells us about the devil and we're thinking about how does this help us resist the devil? Well, I hope you see how it helps us resist the devil. Because as we think about our fear of him, as we think about our fear of his lies, our fear of his tricks, our fear of what he might do to us or to those who we love, we are to see that in the end, well, this is a greater fear, isn't it, what God is going to do? I don't think it's to make us scared, but to make us see that if we trust in the Lamb, there will one day come not just a victory, but a decisive victory. 
As I was thinking about this, I was trying to think about how to illustrate it. And the only thing that would come to mind was Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. I don't know if some of you uh, remember it. You maybe did it in school one or two years ago. Um, But Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote this poem. And it was a poem that he wrote to the members of those, the light brigade, those soldiers who were sent into what was described as the Valley of Death. It was a, the war in Crimea where the British fought the Russians. But I'm going to read to you some verses from this poem because it's clear that even before the charge commenced, they would see it, face certain defeat and complete annihilation. Bear with me as I read this and try not to butcher these great words. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? No, not the the soldier knew. Someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered. Stormed that with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army, while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the six hundred. Tennyson goes on to glorify their efforts. But my point is that even before they entered that battle, certain death, certain defeat was certain. You see, there is no glory following the dragon. There's no glory. He promises glory. We saw that in our last few weeks. But Jesus says there is only certain death and complete annihilation. You see, as God's people, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we can trust in Jesus. And we can trust what he says here. He is victorious. And one day, he will destroy evil forever. And he says to us as we sit here, he says, cast your mind on this destination, on this location. Whatever temptation you face right now is temporary. But one day, the wrath of God will come upon our enemies forever. So he says, do not fear. Inside the city, it's where we're destined if you're a Christian. Outside the city, it's where you're destined if you're not. But let's look at our last point before the city. And in this point, we're going to see that God's people are called to proclaim these truths before they reach their final destination. You'll see that we're looking at this little section in between, chapter 14, verses 6 to 13. And that we're going to finish with these verses because, well, I hope you see why, you'll see in a wee minute, the other two sections deal with final locations, final destinations. We've had Mount Zion and we've had the great winepress of God's wrath. But in these verses, I believe it deals with the journey 
to those final destinations. It deals with the road that we are on now as we head towards Mount Zion. And as we're going to see in these verses, it tells us what we can do right now to resist the devil. We're going to see this by looking at what John sees. And John sees uh, three angels. And you'll see the first of which described in verse 6. And you'll see there in verse 6, this, this angel is described as having the eternal gospel, which he proclaims to all those who live on the earth. And you'll actually see there in verse 7, the particular message he has is about giving glory to God and, and calling the world to worship him. And this is in contrast to the second angel, which we see in verse 8. He, say, he, he, he comes with a word of warning. And this angel proclaims to those who, who, who defile themselves by going with the woman, Babylon. He says, warning, warning, you're on the wrong side. And he says, if you follow the beast, then you're destined for the destruction. And then verse 9, we have this sort of prolonged section, verse 9 to verse 11 which is really the judgment on all those who worship the beast. I'd love to read these verses, and I, but I encourage you to skim your eyes down through them because it, just, it tells us what we have just been reading about in verses 14 and following. And it tells us, the angel says, if you follow the beast, if you worship the beast, you're going to face eternal, certain and eternal judgment. But the reason this is here, the reason these three angels are here is to tell us how we can resist the dragon. And to tell us how we can resist the dragon as we await our destiny. And we follow their lead. That's what we do. We proclaim the glory of God. We condemn the beast. And we warn the followers of the dragon of the judgment to come. In other words, we talk about the two destinies that we have just studied. Let me try and illustrate this quickly, and then we'll draw to a close. But let me try and illustrate this by a phrase that was used in the 1800s. I'm sure you've heard of it. In the United States of America, in the 1800s, the government used the phrase, Go West, young man. Go west, young man. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, everyone was, of course, living in the eastern seaboard, and uh, they were trying to push everyone out to the western frontier uh, to settle the fledgling United States. And it's almost a 300-mile journey from, or three, sorry, 3,000-mile journey from the Cumberland Gap there and uh, wherever it is in Virginia all the way uh, to California. And you know, you, you've seen the Westerns, you know the conditions, you know what it was like. They, they rode by carriage or they walked or on horseback. And the risks that they faced going across that unmarked, unmapped land were, were amazing. They risked isolation. They risked attack from Native Americans or, or highwaymen or thieves. They risked disease and starvation. They risked becoming victim to everything that the sort of terrain and the climate would throw at them. And of course, they'd be tempted to give in, wouldn't they? They'd be tempted to go another way. But you know what they did? In order to keep going, they would talk about the land that they were promised. They would talk about that gold that they were going to mine in those hills or in those rivers that would make them rich. They would describe the, 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 the house that they would build for themselves, that they would own themselves. And they would discuss the years in which they would move no further so they could settle down and prosper 
and chase the American dream. That is the same thing that these verses are telling us to do as Christians. We've seen the two locations. We know where everyone, everyone in this world is going to end up. And we know that tonight our destiny, our destiny is at Mount Zion. And we know the destiny of our enemy and those who worship him. You see, the problem with America's, North America was there was always this, there was always this thought that it was hearsay. It was maybe a dream that someone had cast onto them or, or a political plea. But not us as Christians. No way. See, the truth is we're heading towards the real promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. And you see, this is how we are to resist the devil. As we head towards the city, towards Mount Zion, we're to talk about our destiny. We're to proclaim the glory of God and all that he has done for us, all that our Lamb has done for us. We're to sing as we have done tonight. We're to remind each other that our eternity is secure. And we're to remind ourselves that one day, the Lamb will decisively destroy our enemy and all those who side with him. As we conclude, let's go back to the very beginning. Because how does this, what's this section about? This section is about the dragon and his beasts. It's about the devil, isn't it? It encourages us to, to know his ploys and his tactics and it's to encourage us to take him seriously. And you might be thinking, do I feel rather foolish being scared of this dragon? I'm told all the time that the lamb is going to be victorious, but yet I'm worried about what he's going to do. Well, God knows that. And God says, you know, it's okay. It's okay to be concerned about the dragon. He is, he is worth, he, we need to know, we need to acknowledge his power and his authority. But we need not worry. We need not be concerned. Because if you're a Christian here tonight, then you are on the Lord's side. And that means if you feel or have felt Satan's temptation come upon you, or if you have suffered from his attacks, even if you have fallen for his attacks, even if you have fallen for his ploys, even if you feel weak this evening because of his strength and you don't know what to do, I encourage you. I encourage you to look at what John sees here, these two locations, these two destinations. Mount Zion, that's where you're going if you've been redeemed by the Lamb. And if you worship the beast, if you worship the dragon, then you're heading for the great wine press of God's wrath. But in the meantime, on the road, let's join with these angels. Let's talk about our destiny. Let's share it with one another. Let's talk about how great it's going to be. Let's proclaim the glory of God. Let's proclaim the defeat of Satan. And let's proclaim the judgment of all those who oppose him. That's how you resist the dragon. Easy peasy, eh? <laughs> Let's pray as we consider these things. Almighty God, we recognize that you have defeated our great foe, but we acknowledge that we are still weak and we still fear him. But we thank you that you reach down to our weakness, you speak into our weakness, and you comfort us with words of where we are going. 
you remind us that we will join with that great multitude and such will be our singing that it will sound like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder. And we will stand with them and we will sing great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. And we pray that as we consider the beast and the dragon and his ways and his tactics, that we would cling on to this great vision, that we would know that we are going to Mount Zion. Help us hold on to these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. We're going to respond to God's word now.